Intentionally yeah, and do it well, yeah. and so it is like like it feels it feels purposeful. Yeah, that's the good part. If nothing, you know, less of it, less of it is the purposefulness of like learning discipline. Um, more of it is the purposefulness of like, hey, I'm learning discipline to be in God's work. You know? like, so, it, so it has that like dual benefit as opposed to just like busy work and doing school. But you can you can find a purpose. time on all glory? Sure. Uh, do you mind counting it? Do you mind counting it? Not at all.
Good morning. That was enthusiastic. We're a lot louder under the tent. Uh, I like that. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Under the Tent. It is good to be together to worship the Lord. Uh, if you're new this morning, we want to just extend a special welcome uh, to you and to you and to all of us as a reminder. We just want to say that at Grace, we are a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. Um, that's what we're about here, and we want everything to reflect that. So just a few reminders this morning. Uh, one, uh, we just want to say thank you so much for your generosity and kindness and giving over the past few months, even through this, this strange time. And uh, also to remind you that if you'd like to give uh, this morning, there's offering boxes uh, in the back of the tent, and you can give online as well. And then secondly, next week uh, is going to be an exciting morning because we're having child dedications. So plan to be here for that. It's an exciting time for the body uh, to dedicate those uh, little ones. And if you have a child and you'd like to have your child dedicated next week, there's a, a form on our website uh, that you can uh, indicate your interest on. So uh, we would love that. And with that now, uh, I'll ask you to stand as we begin our service reading from God's Word. We're going to read from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 3. David writes this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And Father, we come to you this morning desiring to bless your name and to worship you. Lord, you are our God and our King, and your greatness is unsearchable. We can't come to the end uh, of how amazing you are. And yet we ask this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly and that you would turn our hearts towards you with greater love and affection for Jesus Christ. Lord, only you can do that. So we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts this morning. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. of our God and King. Lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Thou burning sun with golden Hallelujah. 
worship Him in humbleness. Oh, praise Him. Will all belong to you? Great. 
like to turn with me in your Bible, our scripture reading this morning is going to come from Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can have a seat. And in just a moment, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer together. But before we do, I just want to mention that today we want to highlight one of our missionaries, and that's Brittany Livesey. Uh, I don't think that Brittany's here. I think she just uh, she was here first and snuck away. But Brittany serves uh, over in the El Medina community with a team there, and it's really um, amazing to see what God has done uh, over the past probably uh, four or five years now in Elmo. So in just a moment as we pray, we'll pray for Brittany as well and that the Lord would bless her and her ministry there. So now let's, let's pray together. Father, you are the God of peace. You are the God who has made peace between yourself and sinners like us by sending Christ to die in our place so that we uh, may be justified by faith and have peace with you. 
You are the God who has purchased peace for your church with the blood of Christ. Lord, every wall of hostility that would divide us has been torn down in him. He is our peace. And in Christ, we have uh, the ability to love one another and people from every walk of life and background, different circumstances, we can all uh, selflessly care for one another and value each other above ourselves. And Lord, you're the God of peace internally. And even in the passage we just read, we were reminded that you are able to rule uh, in our hearts and rule with your peace, that Christ can be uh, the one who drives away anxiety and fear and frustration and discontentment. And Lord, we praise you for all of these things. There is no one like you, Lord, no one who can bring the peace and the calm that, that you do. And Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you've already worked uh, on our behalf so that we might have peace. And yet, Lord, we confess that so often we um, do not align with that peace. Even though you've brought us to peace with yourself, we continue to rebel against you. Even this week, Lord, we have spurned you and uh, disobeyed your word. Our affections and our attitudes, the things that we've cherished, have been misplaced. Lord, with respect to one another, we have refused to live in peace, but we've harbored resentment and grudges, and we have spoken ill of each other even. Lord, Internally, we don't have the peace that we ought to. There's stress and frustration and anger. Lord, a, an abundance of things that are not uh, honoring to you in our own hearts. And Lord, in all of that, we just this morning say that we're sorry and we ask forgiveness for those things. We thank you that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would supernaturally bring your peace into our hearts, Lord. Only you can do that, and we ask that you would. We also want to pray for Brittany right now. We thank you so much for her and for her ministry in Elmo. Lord, we ask that you would continue to strengthen her and give her the health required to do what she does there. Lord, we, we long that the people in that community would come to be at peace with you through the gospel. And so as the gospel is going forward, Lord, we ask that you would open blind eyes and give new hearts so that they would trust Christ and enter the peace that he provides. Lord, this morning we want to honor you, love you, see you more clearly. And so we ask that you would be at work in our hearts through your word. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.
Lord, we want our hearts to be drawn in adoration to you this morning. You are a God who is worthy. Christ was worthy to, to, to take on our sin and, and give us his righteousness. God, we thank you that he is worthy. And God, we're called to live in a manner that's worthy. Transform us this morning by your word so that we can live by the power of your spirit a life that is worthy of the, the great calling that you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, good morning. My name is Matthew Holbrook, if you don't know who I am. Uh, normally I get to teach Anchored, which is our young adults group and our high school group, but Pastor Mike is on vacation and so you're stuck with me this morning, but uh, it is a privilege to, uh, to be able to be here and to open God's word with you. A magazine once featured an article on Ernest Hemingway, the famous author, as a man who had really learned how to live. The article had a line in it that said this, Hemingway has proven that you can beat sin. The old antiquated puritanical concept of sin can be done away with very easily and Hemingway is living proof. The article continued and described how Ernest Hemingway had done all these things. He'd traveled the world. He had fought in revolutions. He was living proof that you can cheat so-called sin. Ten years after the article came out, Ernest Hemingway put a gun to his head, pulled the trigger, and died. With all that he had done to live, he was never actually content. Lack of contentment is actually a massive issue in our world today. If you follow the news at all, Michelle Obama actually just came out and talked this week about her experience with depression. I could give you all kinds of statistics about depression and anxiety. 264 million people worldwide suffer from clinical depression. 40 million adults in the United States would be diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder. 800,000 people commit suicide. And the numbers just get worse amongst young people. You look at the formative Christian leaders over the centuries, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Bunyan, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Paul Tillich, and many others experienced great levels of depression. Modern times, John Piper, Randy Alcorn have written and talked extensively about their own experiences with depression. But I don't really have to tell you that depression and anxiety is a major issue in the world because you know it. You know it. Either you know somebody close to you that struggles with these things or more likely you know it in your own heart and in your own life. In a lot of ways, this has been a, a difficult season for me. Circumstances have been particularly hard and especially in recent weeks. And if I was just to be honest, I'm tired. I'm tired. Sometimes we just get drained and we wish situations away. We long for relief and we lack contentment. And the circumstances in the world today make this even more true. 
More than ever, our culture creates wants and dissatisfaction, discontentment. And so it's a good thing today that we come to Philippians chapter 4. It's a chapter about joy and peace and most of all, contentment. And so I think it's timely for us to look at this chapter here today. And I want to start off by giving you four ingredients out of Philippians 4 for contentment. So if you have your Bibles, you want to keep them open to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. But I'm actually going to dive in at this crazy verse in verse 4, which is one that if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard your whole life. But it really is kind of a crazy verse. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And in case you didn't get it, he says, and again I say rejoice. It's a command. It's an imperative. You are to rejoice. In fact, it's an offense to God as a Christian when you are not rejoicing. We are to rejoice. We might take this rejoice in the Lord idea as kind of a, a feel-good axiom that maybe it's just supposed to sort of be something we, we consider or that would be nice. But no, Paul doubles down on this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and in case you didn't get it, again I say rejoice. In fact, 70 times in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament call for Christians to rejoice. In fact, just right here in this letter, one chapter before, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Six verses later, after chapter 4, verse 4, he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This is a really big deal. And I would suggest to you that the first ingredient for contentment is to rejoice in the Lord. The first ingredient for contentment is to rejoice in the Lord. But notice it doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Let's be real. There's a lot of bad things that happen in life. There are a lot of trials and tribulations and struggles, and we live in a world contaminated by sin, and there are things wrong all over the place. And Paul is not saying rejoice in your circumstances. In fact, there is a place to sorrow and to weep in your circumstances. The same Paul said in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep. There's a time to weep. We've seen that in Ecclesiastes as we've been going through there. There's a time to weep. Jesus in John chapter 11 did what? He wept. So when we say rejoice in the Lord, we're not ignoring the reality that there are things to weep over, that life is hard, but there is something that rises above that. And Paul is calling our attention to that. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. And you can weep in your circumstances and rejoice in the Lord at the same time and find joy even in sorrow. What is rejoicing in the Lord? Let me give you a definition. It's the reckless abandonment to Jesus Christ in any circumstance. The reckless abandonment to Jesus Christ in any circumstance. It's constantly over and over saying, Lord, I'm yours. I don't understand what's going on. I don't like what's going on. I don't, I, I, this is difficult, but I'm so glad that I belong to you and I can trust you. Relentless abandonment, reckless abandonment to Jesus Christ in any circumstance. We see this with the apostles. It's independent of their circumstances. In Acts chapter 5, we see a story of the apostles were called before the Jewish council because they were preaching Jesus. They were flogged and beaten and then they were charged not to speak the name of Jesus anymore. And then they were let go. And what did the apostles do? Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, having just been beaten, rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For what name? For the name of Jesus. Reckless abandonment to Jesus. The whole context of this is set. If you go back to verse 1 here in Philippians 4, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. That's that same phrase. We see in the Lord again. Standing firm in the Lord sets the stage for rejoicing in the Lord. Stand firm. It's a, it's a military term. It's used for a soldier. Standing firm in his position in the midst of battle with the enemy all around him and he doesn't move. He's standing firm in the Lord in the middle of the chaos of what goes on in the world. And Paul is saying here, be rooted in the Lord. Your identity in the Lord supersedes everything else. You exist for him. He doesn't exist for you. You exist to serve him, to love him, to proclaim him, to show his glory. John Piper says, God is most glorified in you when? When you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And I would add to that, when you're satisfied in him alone, you can have joy in any circumstance. When you're satisfied in Jesus alone, it doesn't matter what happens around you because you're satisfied in him. Stand firm in the Lord and you can rejoice in the Lord. Randy Alcorn writes a story about, or recounts a story of a woman by the name of Alice Gray who was sitting in a restaurant with her friend Marlene and they were talking about the painful challenges in life and they frequently mentioned the Lord. They were talking about Jesus in this context. And Alcorn writes, Alice noticed a young woman at the table next to them with a radiant and joyful face. The young woman smiled and said she'd overheard their conversation. Speaking softly, she encouraged, encouraged Alice and Marlene that God understood and cared for their heartaches and nothing could separate them from God's love. Alice continued talking with Marlene after but realized that something was different. The young woman's words had refreshed them. When the smiling woman got up to leave, Alice saw that she wore bulky shoes, carried a walking stick, and moved with a severe limp. The waitress told Alice this woman had been in a near-fatal auto accident the year before. She'd been in and out of the hospital and rehabilitation. Her husband had divorced her. Her home had been sold. She'd just moved into her own apartment. She had to use public transportation because she couldn't drive. She couldn't find a job. Alice sat stunned. She said, this young woman's conversation had been filled with delights of the Lord. There had been no weariness about her. She had encouraged us with words of praise and promise. Meeting her that day, we would never have suspected that storms were raging in her life. Even as she stepped outside into the cold winter wind, she seemed to carry God's warm shelter of hope with her. This is a woman who understood what it means to rejoice in the Lord. She could sorrow, and I'm sure there were lots of tears with all of the circumstances she was dealing with, but she could rejoice in the Lord. So the first ingredient of contentment is rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, we, we see in verse 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I'm going to suggest to you the second ingredient to um, uh, contentment. First is to rejoice in the Lord. Second is to forbear. You're going to say, where are you getting this forbear? 
Well, verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Or that word can also be translated as your gentle spirit. Or the New American Standard um, says your forbearing spirit. Or maybe the most literal translation of this is, let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men. You could translate this as your generosity, your humble willingness to be disgraced. Your humble willingness to be disgraced. Your humble willingness to be treated unjustly, to be mistreated without hatred, without bitterness, without retaliation, without self-justification, without being discontent. It's meekness and gentleness in the face of hostility. It's not talking about your rights. That's what this reasonableness is, is, is talking about. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You're not somebody demanding your rights all the time. Contentment comes, in other words, from learning to accept less than what you think that you're owed. Learning to let go of your rights. Our, our culture is defined by rights. Everybody wants to talk about my rights. The reality is our society is being destroyed by claims for rights that are coming out of egotism and self-centeredness. Everybody wants their rights. Everybody thinks that they can define for themselves what they're owed. But the reality is contentment never comes from demanding and getting what you want. Contentment never comes from demanding and getting what you want. How many people do you know, whether you know personally or you know um, in the news, they have everything that they could ever want and they're not content? Contentment doesn't come from demanding and getting everything you want. It comes from accepting your circumstances and living only for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you, plead with you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is appealing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's the same idea. Of everyone who's ever existed... Jesus had more right to claim what was owed to him. He was owed worship. He was owed obedience. He was owed glory. And he was willing to humble himself and become a man and to be killed on a tree that he created and grew by people he created, by people he gave every breath to. And Paul's saying, I'm appealing to you by this kind of meekness and gentleness. That's what he's saying. Let everyone know this about you. This is how others-oriented you are. When you are others-oriented to that degree, you're going to be content because you're not going to be concerned about what you're owed and what, you're de what you deserve. You'll be willing to let your rights be trampled. You're not demanding rights. You're not demanding privileges. You're not demanding recognition. You're not demanding possessions. You're not demanding health. You're not demanding wealth. You're not demanding anything. Contentment belongs to people willing to accept less than what they're owed. So contentment comes to those who rejoice in the Lord, and contentment comes to those who forbear, who don't demand their rights. And third, contentment comes to those who are not anxious. Look at the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Or some translations say the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Stop right there. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't you wish it was just that easy? You could just be like, self, don't be anxious. Boom, you're not anxious. You could just command the anxiousness away from you. 
But the reality is Paul sets this up and he says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. That's the foundation from which he says, do not be anxious. It starts with knowing that the Lord is near, that he is with you, that he cares. Matthew chapter 6 says this. For this reason, this is Jesus talking. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil and they do not spin. Yet I say to you that not even Saul, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Lord is near. The Lord cares. And there's evidences of that all over the place. So don't be anxious. When we're anxious, it's a matter of, of control or a matter of, of feeling that we've lost control in some way. But the reality is that when you're anxious, it's because we're anticipating the future. And when we are anxious, it's a reflection of what we think about who holds the future. When we're anxious, it's a reflection of what we think about who holds our future. One writer says this, I cannot know why suddenly the storm rages so fiercely round me in its wrath, but this I know, God watches all my path and I can trust. I may not draw aside the mystic veil that hides the unknown future from my sight, nor know if for me awaits the dark or the light, but I can trust. I have no power to look across the tide to see the land beyond the river, but this I know, I shall be God's forever and I will trust. This is, this is somebody who is, who is coming before the Lord and knows that the Lord is near and they don't understand what's happening in the future or why, but they're saying, I know the Lord is near and I'm going to trust. And Paul says, be anxious, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Supplication is just requesting, pleading, making a request of God. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be thankful to God and lay it on Him and trust Him. Don't be anxious. We thank God for our circumstances. We pray. We trust Him. And then we know that he is near, that he cares, and we, and we are not anxious. Paul Rees tells the story of a man who was on a ship that was torpedoed during World War II. Eventually the ship sank, and the sailors that were on that ship were in this little life raft, and they were captured by the Germans. And they were held captive on this warship, and they weren't sure what was going to happen to them. And as you can imagine, their stress and anxiety was going through the roof. And one of the men who was being held captive said this. He said, I began to commune with the Lord. At first I couldn't sleep. And then the Lord reminded me of the 121st Psalm, which says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He that keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he will neither slumber nor sleep. 
So I said, Lord, there's no use in both of us staying awake. If you're going to keep watch, I'll thank you if I can get some sleep. And I got it. That's somebody who just said, I know the Lord is near. I'm going to cast my concern on him, and I'm going to trust him. Know the Lord is near. Ingredients for contentment. Rejoice in the Lord. Forbear without demanding your rights. Don't be anxious. Pray and trust God. And then fourth ingredient is get your mind right. Get your mind right. Verse 8 in Philippians 4 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what you're to think about. I don't have time to unpack all of those words. But Paul is saying, think about things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good reputation, excellent, worthy of praise. What can you think of that meets all of those criteria? Jesus. Jesus Christ is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely. The word lovely, by the way, here just means worthy of being loved. Good reputation, excellent, worthy of praise. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter uh, 3, he says, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on things above. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You want your heart and your affections to be someplace? That's where your treasure is. Put your treasure where you want your heart to be. So put your heart in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. Think about things from a heavenly perspective. Be consumed with God. Be consumed with who he is. Let me ask you, are you grounded in God's sovereignty, in his goodness, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, in his perfection, in his power, in his might, in his trustworthiness, in his constancy, in his eternality, in his creative authority, in his knowledge, in his immutability, in his omnipresence, in his infinite nature? If these things permeated your heart and your mind and your soul, you would have no reason to be anxious. You would be content in him. Paul says, let your mind dwell on these things. Store up treasures in heaven by putting your heart and your mind on heavenly things. Create a habit to think on these things. So what do you put in your mind? If you're putting things that are not true or honorable or lovely or just, or etc., if, if you're putting things that are not those things in your mind, you're not going to be content. You will not be content, period. You have no hope of being content. You just won't be. Fill your mind with porn, with gossip, with examples of selfishness, with self-esteem talks, with things of this world, with culture, you're just not going to be content if those are the things in your mind. This life, this world, is not your happily ever after if you're a Christian. This is not the happily ever after. Not for the Christian. So are we consumed by looking for happily ever after in this world? Or in the world that God has reserved for those who belong to him? R.C. Sproul used to talk about the misplaced locus of amazement. I like that phrase, the misplaced locus of amazement. He would say that we're amazed by, entertained by, focused by on the things of this world. That's what we're amazed by. 
the things in the, in the creative realm, in the created realm. And he says, we have a misplaced locus of amazement. We should be amazed by God Almighty, the one who has made it all. The most amazing thing in the universe is the one who made it. We have a misplaced locus of amazement. But if we were amazed by God and that fed our soul and our thinking, we're not going to be anxious. We're going to be able to rejoice. We're going to be content. Paul knew this. One chapter before in Philippians 3, he says this, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, nothing else matters compared to knowing Christ. If you're not regularly reading your Bible and you're wondering why you're not content, wonder no more. There is no reason for you to have lasting contentment if you're not filling your mind with God's word regularly. There is no reason at all for you to have any lasting contentment if you're not filling your mind with the things of God on a regular basis. So what do you consume by? What do you think about more than anything? That's what you're dwelling on. If it's not the things of God, you're not going to have lasting contentment. So the ingredients of contentment are rejoice in the Lord, forbear without demanding your rights, don't be anxious and get your mind right. Think about the right things. Those are the ingredients. Now I want to talk about the context for contentment. The context for contentment. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4, Philippians 4. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Notice this. Verse 1, his main point is stand firm in the Lord. But look at what he clothes it with. Like, he could not pack this into verse 1 more. He says, therefore, my brothers, my brethren. And then he says, whom I love and I long for. And who's my joy and my crown. And then he finishes it up by saying, my beloved. Do you think Paul cares about these people? He like packs all of this caring in his heart into this opening verse of chapter 4, talking about how much he cares about the Philippian church. And then watch this. He transitions. This is, this is verse 1. Where does he say rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice? In verse 4. This is how he's setting up rejoice in the Lord always. This is the setup. And he talks about how much he loves the Philippian church. And then he says, kind of this weird verse in verse 2. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So there's these two women in the church. And he says, I'm, I'm entreating, I'm begging, I'm pleading. Agree in the Lord. Why does he need to say, tell them, to agree in the Lord. Because they're not agreeing in the Lord. There's some type of dissension between them. There's some type of faction between them. They're not getting along. And Paul's like, I I'm entreating them to get along. And then he says in verse 3, yes, I ask you, true companion. He's talking somehow specifically to somebody in the Philippian church. He's saying, I'm asking you, help these women. Help them what? Help them get along. And now how does he describe the women? These women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's the deal. You got two women. They've been laboring with Paul, striving together for the gospel, legitimately working in the ministry to proclaim the gospel. But now these two women can't get along. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They're legitimately Christians. They're saved. They've done the work of ministry. They now can't get along. Paul's saying, I'm begging you, get along. Hey, true companion, whoever you are, get in there, help them get along. 
You know what we're talking about right here? We're talking about the messiness of church. This is what happens when you bring together messy, sinful, broken, but redeemed people to serve the Lord. That we can come alongside each other and strive together for the gospel and then screw up and not get along. And we have all these things going. And, and this is the context. Paul's saying, I love you guys so much. Get along. We've been serving together. Somebody get in there and help them. This is messy. The context for our contentment is the local church. Paul comes and says, rejoice in the Lord always out of that context. He's saying, this happens in the context of the church. You see, our, our contentment is largely a community project. Watch how this goes further. In verse 5, which we just were looking at, it says, let your, your reasonableness, your gentle spirit, your willingness to be trampled be known to all men. Where does that play out? In the church. What if everybody gathered here today just lived life with each other and you're just like, you know what, I'm totally willing to be trampled by everybody else here. You know why? Because everybody else here is more important than I am. Can you imagine what relationships would be like, what ministry would be like if we all felt that way? You know what would come out of it? We would be content because we'd be caring about each other more than ourselves. Contentment comes from how we can even forbear with each other. Or verse 8, dwell on these things. All these things we're to dwell on, we're to think about the things of God, the things of Jesus. How is that supposed to happen? We're to sing to each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How does that happen? Preach the word in season and out of season. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. How do you build each other up? By pointing them back to the truth. Or in verse 9, here in Philippians 4, Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What have they learned and seen and received and heard from Paul? How to be content. Paul is a model for that. He's an example of that. Where do you go to get examples and models of people that have learned how to be content? For people who have learned how to be obedient, how to, who have learned how to live their lives for the Lord. You see that in the context of the local church. Where can you be a model and be an example? In the church. This is to happen within the church. The church is the place where we have the opportunity to do this. The point is, our contentment in Paul's mind flows in the context of church, that we forbear with each other, that we love each other, that we strive together for the gospel, that we're models and examples for each other, that we sing to each other truth, that we preach to each other, that we encourage each other in truth. Being connected to, involved in, committed to, dedicated to the local church is the key to having the context in your life for contentment. So we have the ingredients and we have the context. Now I just want to point you to the foundation for contentment, the foundation. We saw in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, don't be anxious, but with everything in prayer and supplication, let requests be known to God. And then we have in verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does contentment grow out of? The peace of God. This peace, this, this inner calm that we get that's divinely appointed. It's an alien peace, a divine peace that comes from outside of us to us. It's beyond our comprehension, it says. 
And it's going to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's again, it's a military term that God's peace will guard and protect our hearts and our minds. It will fend off the circumstances and allow us to know peace. And this is repeated again. We see in, in verse 9 that what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. And what happens? And the God of peace will be with you. That peace, it's out of that peace that contentment comes. It's out of that peace that contentment comes. And so peace is the foundation Divine peace is the foundation of our contentment. So we have four ingredients for contentment. We have the context for contentment, which happens within the context of the church. We have a foundation for contentment, which is knowing God's peace. And then lastly, for this morning, we come to the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. Remember when Paul wrote this letter, he was a prisoner in Rome, he was literally chained to a Roman soldier. And it's in this context he says in verse 10, Philippians 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Again, he's, he's appreciating the concern the church had for him. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Stop right there. He's learned to be content. Being content is something that we learn to do. It is, it is something that God teaches us over time. We learn. I want to learn to be content. Verse 12, Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. What has he learned? The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's saying, look, no matter the circumstance, I've learned to be content. And then he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. All right, I hate to break it to you, but Philippians 4.13 doesn't mean that God is going to empower you to be able to run a marathon better. It doesn't mean that he's going to empower you to be able to play a football game better. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see this that football players put it on their like eye black, Philippians 4.13, or you see, I, I've run a few marathons, and I see that on the back of people's t-shirts. I can do all, all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not talking about that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about the greatest superpower known to man. Now, take any superhero you want. Like Superman can fly or be shot by bullets and Batman can do whatever Batman does and, and Spider-Man can spin webs and take whatever superpower, pick whatever superpower you want. Do you want any of those over the ability to be content all the time? To have joy all the time? It's the greatest superpower that there is. You have in you as a Christian the ability to have contentment all the time. There is nothing better than that. And Paul's saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not an overstatement. He's not exaggerating. He can be content in any situation. But he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's learned the secret of being content. So what is the secret? What did he learn? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. You can either turn there or you can just listen. Paul says this to the Corinthian church. Because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, so Paul had received some revelations from God, and he says, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, I might think better of myself because I received these revelations. I'm super spiritual. 
And he says, because of this, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. What is he content with? With weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying, if I didn't have this weakness, I wouldn't be dependent on Christ. Or another way to put this, the secret that he learned is total, complete dependence on Christ is the key to contentment. MacArthur says this, speaking of this passage, he said, Paul found his contentment in the strength of Christ that comes to the believer when he has exhausted his human resources. So contentment is a byproduct of distress. Contentment comes when you experience the sustaining power of Christ in those times when you have no human strength. To him who has no might, God increases strength. That's why Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've learned the secret. I've learned through life's trials and tribulations that I just throw myself on Jesus, depend on him, and I can be content. When we have no other hope, no other resource, no other option, no other plan, no other consideration, no other provision, no other support, no other direction, when we have nothing else and we throw ourselves on Jesus, we throw ourselves on the one who holds the universe together, we can trust him, and that's the secret that Paul learned, that he knew. He learned to put his whole dependence on Jesus, everything. But Paul also understood something else. In Romans 5.1, Paul said this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's this concept of peace again. This is the concept of we can have peace with God, and God gives us peace as far as an inner calm, but it goes so much further. And what Paul is talking about in Romans 5.1 is that we can be justified with, by faith so that we can have peace with God. He's talking about the fact that he knew that he needed peace, not just from God, but peace with God. See, God is a God of peace, but God is also a God of war. God's holy essence requires that he cannot coexist with sin. He has to uphold his own righteousness, so therefore he has to punish sin. And everyone sinned. All have sinned. And so as a result, we are all under the wrath of God. That's what's owed. We are subjects of the God of war. Yet the good news is, the gospel is that Jesus came to earth, God in the flesh, to be the perfect substitute, to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. See, our sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. So infinite punishment is due. So either we get the infinite punishment from God for forever or there's a substitute that takes that infinite punishment in our place. And Jesus is that perfect infinite substitute. God himself absorbing that punishment for us. So when we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I want you more than I want my sin. I'm turning from sin to follow you, Jesus then Jesus stands in our place. He becomes our substitute. And we trade places with him. God treats Jesus as if he lived our life. And he treats us as if we lived Jesus' perfect, sinless, righteous life. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that he was God, that he was an adequate and perfect substitute. He conquered sin on our behalf. So here's the thing. For those of us who serve Jesus as Lord, God has solved the biggest problem you could ever have, being the object of the wrath of God, rightly, deservedly. And if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has put that wrath on Jesus and has given you the righteousness of Christ so you can stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy one day. That's the biggest problem you could ever have in your life. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that peace, that he could have peace with God. And so when Paul is looking at the circumstances of his life, he, he could say, none of this compares to the fact that I was under the wrath of God and that God resolved that problem that I was helpless to address. How much harder is it for me to trust God with everything else in life? That's why Paul could write, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He's speaking as somebody who knows about those things. And then he says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What's the conquering? I can be content in all of those situations because I'm totally dependent on Jesus. And then he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That was the secret of Paul's contentment. He knew that. He knew that truth, that reality, that God had solved that problem for him, and he could trust God with everything, and so he could throw his life in dependence on Jesus and he needed nothing else. He could be content based on that. We come this morning to the Lord's table with this understanding. God has solved our biggest problem. If you don't have one of these uh, little packages of the cracker and juice, raise your hand and there's some ushers that can get you one. Keep in mind, when we're not content, when we are not content, we are not trusting God. We're diminishing the value of what he has done for us. When we're not content, it is an offense against God. And so we come to take the bread and the cup and understand that. Paul said to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which was delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The bread and the cup, this is for believers, for those who have said, I'm following Jesus. I want Jesus. I don't want my sin. Jesus is enough. I depend on Jesus. If you say that this morning, then you can take the bread and the cup in a a worthy manner. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it why in remembrance of me may we remember him Lord we want to remember you this morning we want to remember that you are near we want to remember what you have done on our behalf God, may we live lives that honor you, glorify you, and please you. Most of all, because we're able to rejoice in you. Because we're able to be trampled for you. Because we're able to not be anxious, but to bring everything to you with prayer and trusting you. God, because we think highly of you. We know that you will give us the peace that passes all understanding. God, we thank you for your church and would you help us to do that pray that this would be more true of us here today than it has ever been before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
You could hear Paul sing that song, right? You know, that's the answer. We want to be content? Only Jesus. Let's close with this. Paul said in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. When do I teach? Um, oh, yeah, I, I teach college kids on Sunday nights. And then high school kids on Wednesday nights. Every once in a while on Sunday.